So our scripture focus is found in 1 Samuel chapter 17, 3 through 12. The Philistines were standing on one hill, and the Israelites were standing on another hill with a ravine between them. Then a champion named Goliath from Gath came out from the Philistine camp. He was nine feet, nine inches tall, and wore a bronze helmet and a bronze scale armor that weighed 125 pounds. There was bronze armor on his shins, and bronze javelin was slung between his shoulders. His spear shaft was like a weaver's beam, and the iron point of his spear weighed 15 pounds. In addition, a shield bearer was walking in front of him. He stood and shouted to the Israelite battle formations, Why do you come out to line up in battle formation? He asked them, Am I not a Philistine, and you are not servants of Saul? Choose one of your men and have him come down against me. If he wins a fight against me and kills me, we'll be your servants. But if I win against him and kill him, then you will be our servants and serve us. Then the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel today. Send me a man so we can fight each other. When Saul and all Israel heard these words from the Philistine, they lost their courage and were terrified. Now David was the son of the Ephrathite from Bethlehem of Judah named Jesse. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, as you're taking your seat, let me encourage you to grab your Bibles and turn them open to 1 Samuel chapter 17. As you're finding your way to this passage, a portion of which was read for us just now, I want to voice a prayer for us and then we're going to dive right in. Heavenly Father, as we open up our Bibles, will you open up our hearts? Would you stir our affections with the reality of what Christ has done for us? We look to you, Jesus, to be our champion, to be our advocate, to be all that we need and then some for everything we experience in this world. And so, God, would you please speak now in Jesus' name, amen. You know, one of my uh, favorite writers back in the day was a guy named Jack Handy. I don't know if you're familiar with that name, but he was a writer for, that kind of moved through Saturday Night Live, and, and uh, he's most famous for the deep thoughts he would share on Saturday evenings uh, during much of the 90s. And, but he also has written a couple of books, one of which was titled Fuzzy Memories. And in this book, he shares his experience with a bully. He said, there used to be this bully who would demand my lunch money every day. Since I was smaller, I would give it to him. Then I decided to fight back. I started taking karate lessons. But then the karate lesson guy said I had to start paying him $5 a lesson. So I just went back to paying the bully, right? It's the path of least resistance. That's what he opted for, and oftentimes that's what you and I opt for. We are tempted to take the path of least resistance. Now, that can be a problem, and that can be a challenge, because you and I follow a Savior who does not lead us away from resistance. He does not lead us around resistance. He leads us right through it. That Jesus has called us to overcome our fears with faith rather than to acquiesce to them out of fear or to appease them out of fear. And, and we're reminded in 1 John chapter 5 of, of this tendency we have to be afraid. There's a reason why the Apostle John would write a word uh, to bolster the courage and the confidence and the faith of the church in the first century as, as they were facing many struggles and, and difficulties. And this is what he would remind the church of. And I would remind us today, he said, everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. 
Everyone who has been born of God is shorthand for every Christian, every person within whom the Spirit of God has caused to come alive so that they are putting faith in Jesus. They've been born again. They have conquered the world. But then he goes on, this is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. Who is the one who conquers the world but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, world here in this passage is shorthand for everything that opposes God's plans or opposes his purposes. That anything that would threaten to unravel God's redeeming activity in our lives, that is the world. And, and the world may be, uh, may, it includes primarily the realities that we all face on a daily basis, the realities of sin, the realities of Satan, the realities of suffering, and the looming prospect and threat of death. But rather than cowing in fear before these bullies, so to speak, we are called to exercise faith in Christ, for it is through faith in Christ where victory is found, where we overcome those that assail us and assault us and afflict us. But one of the things about victory in a Christian's life is that victory in a Christian's life isn't something that you and I achieve through winning. Victory in a Christian's life is something we receive by believing, that it comes through faith. It's what theologians refer to as vicarious victory. So anytime we sing and celebrate our victory as Christians, anytime we sing and celebrate what God is doing and has to deliver us from sin and Satan and death and all the various things that ill us, anytime we celebrate that, we are celebrating a victory that comes to us vicariously. Now, I know that's a big word. We don't hear it very often, but if you are a sports fan, you know what that word means. Sports fans encounter vicarious victories all the time. This is why back in 2014, when the Seahawks won the Super Bowl, everyone in our city cried out, we won, we won. And that includes people who never stepped out onto the field, never threw a ball, never did anything. That includes people who just kicked back in their recliners and drinking their favorite beverage with Cheetos dust all over their fingers and mouth, and they are just seeing it play out. And when the Seahawks won, those who align themselves with the Seahawks, those who are fans of the Seahawks, they would stand up and they would celebrate that victory. That experience is a vicarious victory. And that's true not only in a city like ours, it's true all over the country when sports teams of certain cities win. You might take another city, for example, I don't know, let's, let's pull Cleveland out of the air. Uh, Cleveland, you know, when, when the Browns win, now that's a terrible example because the Browns, the Browns never win. Sorry, Wes. Wes and Casey and the, the Moore family is with us today visiting from Ke Cleveland. Many of you know that Wes was one of the first elders or the first elder that we ever affirmed in addition to myself here in the life of our church plant. And so we are very grateful to see you guys and to celebrate with you this morning. And they're not with us anymore because they have moved to the land, the, the land of the lost. And so when a fan says after a game we won, that victory that they're celebrating is a vicarious victory. They did nothing in the moment to achieve it. All they did was receive the benefits of that victory by aligning themselves up with those who are much more qualified and much more skilled to, to win the game. Well, once again, today I want to take you to a story in 1 Samuel that provides us with an Old Testament picture of this New Testament reality. 
Here in 1 Samuel Samuel chapter 17, we're looking at one of the most famous stories, not only in this book, but in all of the Bible. It's the story of David and Goliath. And it's a long story. Only a portion, a fraction of it was read for us a moment ago. The narrative actually stretches across 58, 58 verses. And its length is an indication of its importance, not only in the book of 1 Samuel, but its importance to the entire Bible as a whole. And what I want you to see today is that this story contains within it a nutshell of the entire gospel story. And I will show that to you in three ways. There are three features, three aspects of this story I want you to think about. One is that that this story is marked out by an enemy too big to handle. Two, it is marked out by a people who are too afraid to fight. They're crouching and cowing in the shadows. But then three, it is marked out by a hero who is far too faithful to fail. And so the story begins with these two military forces. You have the Philistines versus the Israelites. The Philistine forces are gathered at Socha in Judah, and the Israelite forces are camped across the way in the Valley of Elah. Both armies are lined up in a battle formation. Then you look at verse 4. We're told that a champion named Goliath from Gath came out from the Philistine camp. Now, if you like to mark in your Bibles, you might want to underline or circle that word champion because it is key to understanding the meaning of this story. This word is why we can say today that this story is much bigger than we realize. And this story might not mean what some of us have been assuming it means as perhaps we've heard it in Sunday school or in churches or maybe even just heard it referenced in pop culture through movies and music and books. This story might not mean what we have come to think it means. The word champion literally means the man between two armies. Another way of saying it, the word champion means the decisive man. That the decisive man, the champion is the one who's going to determine the fate of everyone present. And this is who Goliath is for the Philistines. He is their champion. He is their decisive man. The Philistines' fate rests upon what he will accomplish when he steps out on the battlefield. And he's a big guy. Notice his measurements. It says that he was nine feet, nine inches tall. That's just three inches shy of a basketball, of a basketball rim. And you would think somebody that tall would also be lanky, that the wind could just kind of blow him away. But Goliath was just as strong as he is tall. Notice how he's described. He wore a bronze helmet and bronze scale armor that weighed 125 pounds. So you can just imagine Goliath with a, an average-sized woman just strapped in a baby Bjorn on his chest. That's basically the equivalent of the weight he's carrying out onto the battlefield. So he is tall, he is strong. Then it goes on, it says, there was bronze armor on his shins and a bronze javelin was slung between his shoulders. His spear shaft was like a weaver's beam and the iron point of his spear weighed 15 pounds. Just the tip of his spear weighed 15 pounds. So Goliath was a warrior like no other. He was a frightening foe. In addition to him being huge and equipped, he had a sidekick who went before him in battle, a shield bearer who carried a shield about the size of an average size man. This, This is incredible detail. And I want you to hear today that this is the most detailed description we have of a warrior in the Bible. And the details are designed to highlight the fact that this enemy is too big to handle. There was a Jewish scholar by the name of Robert Alter. He makes this comment. 
You never see these kinds of details on anyone. And the reason is because this enemy is basically invincible. No one can defeat him. He is too big. He is too strong. He, his skill is too great. He goes on, it will, only, it will require an act of God to beat this giant. Now, if we think carefully about the details that have been dropped about Goliath, I want us to understand that this giant is presented to us as being more than a warrior. And he represents far more than just one battle between these two military forces. That Goliath poses a much greater threat than we might realize at first glance. And I'll give you two details that kind of point us in a much bigger direction. One detail is the fact that Goliath came from a place called Gath. Now, Gath was a place where inhabited the descendants of a people that Israel had fought before. If you were to go back to Numbers chapter 13, you have the people of Israel standing on the thresholds of the promised land. God has promised to give them this land that's described as flowing with milk and honey, this luscious land that the Lord says, I'm going to bless you with. And so he makes that clear to the people of Israel. They have been brought to the threshold of this land. They are about to enter, but lots of people don't want to go because they have caught wind of the inhabitants of that land. There were some who said, we can't attack the people because they are stronger than we are. And so they tried to talk everyone out of going. The land we passed through to explore is one that devours its inhabitants. All the people we saw in it are men of great size. We even saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak, come from the Nephilim. To ourselves, we seemed like grasshoppers. We must have seemed the same to them. Now, there's a lot happening here. The, the Nephilim, they were this mysterious race of gigantic people. Their origins trace all the way back to before the flood of Noah. And we don't fully understand all the complexities of how they popped up on the earth. There's all kinds of views. Scholars have written tombs trying to account for the Nephilim's presence in the world. These huge, this huge, gigantic race. Some suggest that, that they represent the fruit of an unholy union between human beings and demonic forces or demonized people. There's some strange thought behind this mysterious race, but we can say this for certain. We know they were big. They were large. We know they were ancient that they've been around a really long time, and we know that they struck fear in the hearts of the Israelites, a fear that threatened to prevent them from receiving the covenant blessings that God wanted to give to his people. And after Joshua eventually convinced the people, no, the Lord is gonna go before us. He's going to overcome this enemy on our behalf. Once that happened, they move forward and they see this go down. Well, after Joshua and Israel def defeated them, the they relocated to, to Gath, which is where Goliath now hails from. Now, Goliath from Gath means that he was most likely one of those guys' descendants. And he poses the same threat that they posed against Israel. A threat that sought to unravel God's redeeming activity in the history of Israel. And if God unravels if God's redeeming activity unravels there, it ra unravels everywhere. And so this same threat has popped up. It's reoccurring in the history of Israel. But then there's a second detail. 
And this second detail is subtle, but I find it extraordinarily fascinating. When Goliath stepped onto the battlefield, it says that he was dressed in scales. I don't know if you caught that word when we read through that a moment ago. And, and if you're familiar with the storyline of the Bible, you'll know that he's not the first enemy of God's purposes, of God's redeeming activity to appear in Scripture dressed in scales. Who was the very first enemy to step up onto the scene of human history and, and make a mess of things? We have the serpent in Eden. Satan himself appearing in the world dressed in scales. Now, what unfolds on the battlefield of Judah between David and Goliath is far more than a military conflict between two warring nations. It is a part of a much greater conflict that has ramifications for all of God's activity in the world. There came a moment in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, right after Adam and Eve sinned against the Lord and, and God's divvying out consequences for what they have done, he says, he speaks to Satan, he speaks to the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, 15, verse 15, and this is what he says. He says, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And so these two details, the fact that Goliath is a part of a ancient threat to the history of Israel that he's dressed in ways that's very reminiscent of what the serp of what Satan appeared as in Eden it reminds us that this story is a crucial moment in the cosmic conflict between the seed of the woman and the serpent a conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world a conflict that ignited in Eden and one that will only be resolved when God's true champion when the ultimate decisive man steps in between us and that which assails us. Now, I don't want to get too far ahead of our cells with that, but Goliath represents an enemy that's too big to handle. He embodies everything that stands against God's redemption and in the world, namely sin, Satan, and death. This is why we should not read this story and be inspired to go face our giants. This story isn't about inspiration simply. It's speaking to something much deeper that we'll see in a moment. Now, the second feature of the story is a people too afraid to fight. A people too afraid to fight. Verse 8, Goliath stood and shouted to the Israelite battle formations, why do you come out to line up in battle formation? He asked them, am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Choose one of your men and have him come down against me. If he wins in a fight against me and kills me, we will be your servants. But if I win against him and kill him, then you will be our servants and serve us. So there's a lot on the line. Then the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel today. Send me a man so we can fight each other. And when Saul and all the Israelites heard these words from the Philistine, they lost their courage and were terrified. Everybody went white. Their knees started to shake. No one would move towards this threat to Israel. Everybody stood back, and that includes Saul. And if anyone in Israel was remotely close to matching Goliath in size, it would have been Saul. Earlier in chapter 10, verse 23, we are told that Saul stood a head and shoulder above all of Israel. He was the biggest dude on the field on their side, and yet he himself would not step forward and face this foe. Everybody is afraid. And now fear is highlighted again down in verse 24 when all the Israelite men saw Goliath. They retreated from him terrified. 
And Saul, their king, the one who was to represent them in battle, to go before them, exercising faith in the name of the Lord, he shrunk back too. He would not go and face Goliath. Instead, he decides to just throw money at the problem. So he comes up with a solution. I'll just entice somebody to to go forward and to fight for Israel. He says in verse 25, previously an Israelite man had declared, do you see this man who keeps coming out? He comes to defy Israel. The king will make the man who kills him very rich and will give him his daughter. The king will also make the family of that man's father exempt from paying taxes, yet no one stepped up. No one from within the troops' ranks steps forward to face Goliath because he's too big of an enemy to handle. Everyone is afraid. No one moves forward. And since no champion for Israel would rise from within their ranks, they needed, to, they needed someone to come from outside of them, someone to come from outside their ranks. And we are introduced to that outsider in verse 12. In verse 12, the scene shifts from Goliath stepping forward and issuing his demands and calling Israel out. It shifts from that battlefield to Bethlehem and zeroes in on this young shepherd boy. It's almost movie-like the way the scene shifts. You would imagine the, mu- the music changing in the score as, as it does so. And we're told in verse 12, Now David was the son of Ephrathite, son of the Ephrathite from Bethlehem of Judah named Jesse. Jesse had eight sons and during Saul's reign was already an old man. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to war and their names were Eliab the firstborn, Abinadab the next, and Shema the third, and David was the youngest. He was the scrub of the bunch. The three oldest had followed Saul, but David kept going back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock in Bethlehem. Now, if you recall, we, were first, we first met David in chapter 16 when Samuel came and anointed him to be God's chosen king. He's the one who would replace Saul and it is David's lineage that would carry the story of redemption forward throughout the history of Israel, culminating with the arrival of Jesus. And and we also know that at the end of chapter 16, David is, is now in the service of Saul. He's a court musician, most likely, along with several others who would play music for the king when he was assaulted and being assailed by a troubled spirit and and so David apparently was now kind of go spinning was splitting his time between serving Saul and then attending to his father's sheep back home well one day when he was at home hanging with the sheep his father came to him and asked him to bring some food to his brothers on the battlefield verse 23 David has shown up to deliver these goods. In verse 23, while he was speaking with them, presumably his brothers, suddenly the champion named Goliath, the Philistine, here it is again from Gath, came forward from the Philistine battle line and shouted his usual words, which David heard. Now everybody else heard the same words, and they were paralyzed with fear, and nobody stepped forward. Now David hears those exact same words and his response is completely different. What David hears in that moment is the name of God being defiled. It's probably the first time he's ever heard anything like this in his life. And he looks around and he sees everybody cowing in fear, nobody moving forward. And then it comes to verse 26 and he asks the question, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And he raises the question that others should have raised, that others, including 
David's brothers should have asked. And then David's older brother, Eliab, he gets mad at David. He kind of sees his younger brother overstepping his, his role in that moment. And he says, why did you come here? Who did you leave those few sheep with in the wilderness? I know your arrogance and your evil heart. You came down to see the battle. And then David responds like a stereotypical little brother. And I am a little brother, so I can see this clearly. What, what have I done now? It was just a question. What did I do? Why are you so upset? I'm just asking a question. And it was a good question. But it was a question that revealed that David was riled up. His holy indignation was ignited because he heard this Philistine defiling the name of the Lord and threatening to unravel all that God was doing in the people of Israel. And so he steps forward and he volunteers to fight and we find in him just a little glimpse of what a hero who's too faithful to fail looks like. Look at verse 32. David said to Saul, don't let anyone be discouraged by him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. But when Saul looked at David, he didn't see a man after God's own heart. He didn't see the Lord's anointed one. Instead, he saw just a youth, someone who wasn't equipped to go forth and fight this Philistine. So he dismissed him. But David would not be denied. He counters Saul's dismissal with faith. And he says, I fought lions and bears who came from my father's flock. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord, who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. His response is completely different from everyone else's. You know, one of the things about fear is that fear often rises from a distorted perspective. Fear often arises when we're not seeing things clearly. The people of Israel, Saul included, they... They were afraid because they did not think they could live up to Goliath's threat, that they were no match for him, and to some degree they were right. But David wasn't afraid in this moment because he knew, he carried a different perspective, that Goliath couldn't stand up to his Lord. That Goliath was no match for the Lord who had created all things and who redeemed Israel from bondage in Egypt and led them through the wilderness time and time again, showing his power, delivering his people. David knew that Goliath was no match for him. So let me ask you, what is your perspective when you find yourself bullied by sin, bullied by Satan, bullied by sickness, suffering, death? Do you cow in fear knowing you don't stand a chance to overcome them, or do you stand in faith knowing no bully can ultimately stand before the Lord your God? That the Lord can deliver you from whatever threatens to unwind his redeeming activity in your life. Whatever is challenging your faith, the Lord can overcome. That includes the sin you can't seem to shake. It includes the demon you can't seem to expel, the diagnosis you can't cure. Not even death itself can defeat those who are trusting in the name of the Lord. And so David steps up, trusting in the name of the Lord, and Saul says, okay, fine, you're the only one who's doing so, so I'm gonna dress you up in my armor. And he clothes David in his armor, but the armor was too big for him. It got to the point, verse 39, David said, I can't walk in these, I'm not used to them. And finally he took them off and he grabbed a shepherd's staff. He picked up five smooth stones and he slid them into his pouch and then he carried a sling in his hand as he approached the Philistine on the battlefield. 
Then verse 41, the Philistine came closer and closer to David with the shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he despised him because he was just a youth, healthy and handsome. Goliath was offended that Israel's uh, champion was a young shepherd boy. This is kind of like when LeBron James is being matched up and guarded by a third stringer. You can just kind of see the disdain in his face. He's like, how dare you put this guy on me? This is Goliath's reaction. He's offended that David would step forward, not even dressed in armor, to face him. And so Goliath said to David, am I a dog that you come against me with sticks? And apparently Goliath did not see the tennis ball-sized stones that were sitting in his pouch. Uh, I imagine now he wishes he would have seen those stones in David's pouch and But then notice what he does. After he asks that question, it says he cursed David by his gods. This was a huge mistake. This was a huge mistake because when it comes to all that God promised to do for the people of Israel, he told them one of the core tenets of his commitment to his people. He says in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And so when David curse, uh, Goliath curses David by his gods, he is calling God's judgment, God's curse down upon himself. It's a huge mistake. But by this point, David's heard enough. And David shows that he can hold his own in a, in a battle of words, in a verbal assault. And he steps forward and he engages Goliath with words. He says, Verse 45, you come against me with a sword, spear, and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies, the God of the ranks of Israel. You have defied him. Today the Lord will hand you over to me. Today I'll strike you down, remove your head, and give the corpses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the wild creatures of the earth. Then all the world will know that Israel has a God, and this whole assembly will know that it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. He will hand you over to us. Now, I love what David is saying in this moment because he's stepping forward to represent Israel in this battle, but David doesn't think he's the champion. David does not consider himself to be the decisive man in that moment. Instead, he's saying, the Lord is going to do this. The Lord is going to hand you over to me. The Lord is going to hand you over to the people of Israel. The Lord is ultimately Israel's decisive man. Verse 48. When the Philistines started forward to attack him, David ran quickly to the battle line to meet the Philistine. And you can imagine just a collective gasp coming from both sides of the field as they're waiting to see what's about to go down. And then David put his hand in the bag, took out a stone, slung it, and hit the Philistine right on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down to the ground. David defeated the Philistine with a sling and a stone. David overpowered the Philistine and killed him without having a sword. Now here, (laughs) do you understand what God's law requires for blasphemy? the consequence for defaming God's name in the world. If you were to go back and read through the Torah, you're gonna find that the punishment for defiling God's name and doing the things that Goliath is doing in this moment, the punishment for that is stoning. And now you have a stone being embedded right in the forehead of the giant. In other words, the law of God is leveling him. 
The law of God is taking this giant down. And there's a sobering word, a reminder for us. You know, the law is going to crush anyone who tries to dismiss it, disregard it, deny it. The law is going to crush anyone who does not listen to the law and follow the law towards its intended goal, which is saying, hey, look, you can't overcome sin. You can't overcome Satan. You can't overcome death. You must look to the one who can. And so the law's intended effect in our lives is to cause us to look to Jesus. But here you have the law's negative effect falling on Goliath as he's falling with a stone in his head. Verse 51, David ran and stood over him. He grabbed the Philistine's sword, pulled it from the sheath, and used it to kill him. Then he cut off his head. Now, if you've been tracking with us through 1 Samuel, Goliath is now face down and his head has been removed from his body. You're like, this is the same thing that happened to the Philistine god Dagon in 1 Samuel chapter 5. Earlier in the story, there's this moment where the Philistines conquered Israel in battle and they took the Ark of the Covenant which represented the glory of God in the midst of the people. And they brought the Ark of the Covenant back to their land and they set it up in Dagon's temple. And listen to what goes down. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer, from Ashdod, brought it into the temple of Dagon, and placed it next to his statue. When the people of Ashdod got up early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen with his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and returned him to his place. But when they got up early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen with his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. This time, Dagon's head and both his hands were broken off and lying on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso remained you see the story of David and Goliath is speaking to things far greater than just a single battle between Israel and the Philistines the false god in 1 Samuel 5 is struck down by the glory of the one true God now here in 1 Samuel 17 the representative the champion of the Philistines is struck down and decapitated before the servant of Yahweh before the newly anointed one the writer is underscoring the reality that every battle ultimately belongs to the Lord. That the Lord is the champion of his people. Victory then. Victory then for God's people when confronted with the bullies of this world. is not achieved when you, by you and I learning to win. It is received by you and I believing, exercising faith. But what it is, what is it that we are supposed to believe? What are we to believe in order to receive victory? That's the key question. And this is the question where the answer oftentimes falls short in studies of the story of David and Goliath. If you were to look outside the church, oftentimes you're going to hear this story being used to inspire people to believe in themselves. If you believe in yourself, you can overcome whatever is opposed to you right now you can overcome that frustrating boss you can you can get the job that you're going for if you believe in yourself you can do this you can do that you can overcome anything that stands against you or if you were to come inside the church the question what is it that we are to believe that too can sometimes be answered incorrectly because sometimes we can read this story and our instinct because we are Americans our instinct is to identify with David and to say, okay, 
How does David handle this? That's how I'm supposed to handle it. And so David's the hero. I want to be a hero. Uh, David's imitatable. I want to be imitatable. David's doing something good. I want to do something good. And so sometimes we read this story and we are too quick to identify with David, but that's what we do as Americans. That's why we watch the movies that we watch. We read the books that we watch. We see the protagonists and all these stories and we quickly identify with them and we want to be like Luke and Leia. We want to be like Harry Potter. We want to be like all these brave, brave and courageous heroes and stories that we have made up. But the reality is, if we were to believe that and to take that from the story of David and Goliath, we're going to be buying into a delusion. This story is given to us for a reason, and the reason isn't so that you and I can be like David. This story is given so that you and I might see ourselves as Israel. We are the people who are confronted by an enemy too big to handle, so we are cowing in the shadows, terrified. We are afraid. We don't think we can overcome sin, Satan, and death. We can't prevail over the bullies of this world. And so like Israel, we need a champion. Like Israel, we need someone to come not from within our ranks because no one among us can save. We need someone who comes from outside of our ranks. Someone who comes from outside to fight for us. Now, Israel was victorious in this story. That's true. But their victory was a vicarious victory. Their victory came to them because of what their champion did. They had a decisive man. And so the message of the, story of, of the story of David and Goliath isn't simply be like David. The message of this story is look for David. Look for David. You need a champion. You need an advocate. You need a decisive man to come and do for you what you could never do for yourself. And years later... Out of the shadows of Bethlehem, one referred to as the son of David would step forward, coming from outside the ranks of human beings, and he would prove to be the hero too faithful to fail. As Jesus would step between a fearful people and an enemy too big for them to handle, he would prove to be the decisive man by living the life you and I could never live, carrying God's law completely, fulfilling it in his obedience. And his obedience would continue all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross. And yes, the enemy would strike his heel as he died there, but Jesus would ultimately crush his head. And that's exactly what he did when he steps out of the tomb victorious over sin, Satan, and death itself. That's exactly what Jesus did when he conquered the world. And so by faith, we look to Jesus, the true and better David. He is our champion. He is our decisive man. Now, what does this mean specifically for you right now? Well, if you go back to the story of David and Goliath, you know that Goliath stepped forward and he began to speak lots of words. But you know that Goliath didn't get the final say on the battlefield that day. Although he said lots of things, a greater word prevailed. A greater word that was embodied in the faith of David who was acclaiming glory to the Lord, who was trusting in the name of the Lord his God. And we think about that. As Goliath did not get the decisive word on the battlefield, David did. And, and what that means for you and I is that neither sin, Satan, or death itself will get the decisive word in our lives. 
This is the deep point of the story. This is the true meaning of the story of David and Goliath. Sin will not get the decisive word in the life of God's people. That includes your lust. That includes your anger. That includes your idleness. That includes your greed. Sin will not get the final say in the lives of those who are trusting in the son of David, those who are living by faith, looking towards Jesus. But then you go further. Not only will sin not get the decisive word in our lives, neither sickness nor circumstances will get the decisive word in our lives. Cancer will not have the final say. COVID will not have the final say. Not depression, not anxiety, not mental illness, not a lost job, not an abusive spouse. Nothing will get the decisive word in the lives of those who trust in Jesus. Nothing but Jesus alone. Jesus is the champion. He is the decisive man. He gets the final say for those who look to him. Neither will Satan get the decisive word in our lives. No temptation, no deception, no accusation, no intimidation, nothing he throws at us as we journey through this world will be decisive because Jesus is the decisive man and he will get the final say in the lives of all who trust in him. And so we read the story of David and Goliath and we don't walk away saying, I'm gonna be like David. We're walking away from the story today saying we are gonna look to David. And then we're gonna look to the one that David points us to, the son of David who would step forward as the champion, the decisive man. And as we are trusting in him, we are trusting in the one who has faced and fought and prevailed over the enemy too big for any of us to handle. We can look to him and say, what then are we to say about these things, if God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything Any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we turn our attention to the Savior this morning. We are looking to Jesus in faith. Thank you, Jesus, for being our champion, for being the decisive man in our lives. Thank you, Jesus, for overcoming the enemy too big for anybody in this room, anybody in this world to handle. Thank you, Jesus, for coming and fighting on our behalf. Thank you, Jesus, for giving us victory through faith in yourself. We celebrate the victory that we have in Jesus now. We pray this in his name.